Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. I feel like we've been talking about this particular book for years now, and it is finally here. Yay! Yes, and we're excited to talk about it today. Apocalypse, any day now, deep underground with America's doomsday preppers by Milwaukee's paranormal investigative journalist himself, T. Krulos. T, how you doing today? Oh, I'm great. Great to be back. On see you on the other side. Hi, T. Hi, Wendy. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Thank you. As you mentioned, it was quite a process to get the book done. So Yeah, and it's it's awesome. And so exactly how long have you been working on this book right here? Because I remember hearing about it when you first announced it. Yeah, um, let's see. I think I signed the deal for it in 2015. Um, so I, I started working on it in 2015. And I wrapped it up about a year ago, so I worked on it for a pretty solid three years, which yeah. is uh, a significant amount of time, I guess. Yeah, that's a, that's a good portion of your life you spent with Doomsday Preppers. And, um, okay, it's called Apocalypse Any Day Now, uh, and you talk to Doomsday Preppers, you talk about different end-of-the-world scenarios. Um, what I love it is that it, you just start using an acronym for the end of the world as we know it. So you just start using that acronym so you don't have to type it out every single time. You say that the Ayat Kui. Yeah, Wauki. Which I love that acronym because when you say it, it sounds like you're channeling some sort of ancient god that's going to come out of a volcano or something, you know. Right, exactly. Wauki comes. He's some Lovecraftian elder that comes up and takes care of us at the end of the world. Which, I mean, wait, have you guys seen Cabin in the Woods? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, um, ne- we won't talk about it then. Oh, <laughs> it's, I'll watch it's, it soon so we can talk about it. Yes, it's still it's still new enough uh, that it's not it's it, we won't spoil it. But okay. It's, Thanks. Speaking of end end of the world as we know it scenarios, that's what Cabin in the Woods is all about. Yeah. All right. Now, T uh, for people who maybe haven't uh, heard you on the podcast before or to new listeners, why don't you let us know real quick a little bit what this particular book is about and kind of what inspired you uh, t- to go after and talk about this stuff in, in the first place. Sure. Um, so as I was wrapping up my last book, Monster Hunters, um, I was thinking about ideas of what I wanted to do next. And uh, I forget exactly which prediction it was, but I've always really enjoyed hearing d- specific doomsday predictions. Like the world is going to end April 11th, 2012, you know? I'm like, oh boy, this is good. I can't wait. I can't right. wait to, to see if the world really ends or not. And it seems like there's always, like, every couple of years or something, there's a blood moon prophecy, a Mayan prophecy, or whatever. So I've always been a little fascinated by that. And then uh, I also, but then the other thing is, I was thinking, well, if there is, like, a world-changing event, how prepared would I be to survive? Uh, and I think the answer is, not really well at all. <laughs> so, Uh-oh. 
I, I mean, I don't. I barely get through the week. You know, I'm not prepared for the end of the world. That's for sure. So I kind of wanted to explore it and get some different ideas. And also, whenever、um, I'm interested in a, a subculture, a group of people like this, I want to see if the stereotypes are true. You know. We've all seen prepper portrayals on like doomsday preppers and shows like that, and so I wanted to find out: are these people really kind of crazy, angry, paranoid people? And I guess my discovery there was that yeah, some of them are for sure. <laughs> the, I mean,、Confirmed. the stereotype is true sometimes, but you'll find also that there's a lot of people that are surprisingly normal, and they just have this kind of quirky habit where they. Spend their spare time learning survival skills. How many of them are like the、uh, Michael Gross character from Tremors? Remember, like in the original <laughs> Tremors, it's Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre playing the doomsday preppers in that small town. And I just—that's always my my vision of them. Yeah, I, I mean, they definitely are out there for sure.、Um, I've observed them from a a safe distance at prepper conventions and stuff like that. I went to a couple of different prepper conventions while I was working on the book, so they're out there, but. There's also like a pretty normal guy that might be sitting at the desk next to you at work who just has this secret life. And do you think they tend to be older, or do they tend to be you know of a certain age? Because when I think about doomsday preppers, and just if you guys don't know what a doomsday prepper is, it's someone who thinks that the end of the world is imminent, or at least the end of civilization, and they're setting themselves up to get ready, like in a bunker. Or food supplies, or all those kind of things, for when society eventually breaks down and we have to fight each other for food and for oil, road warrior style. <laughs> and when I think about this, I always think about people who grew up in the 1950s and 60s because they grew up with air, you know, warnings of nuclear attacks and practicing drills against air raids and things like that. And you know, I think that can fuel sometimes the idea that the end of the world is imminent because you used to be able to open a magazine and there would be an ad for a bunker to go into your home so you could be safe when the Russians finally drop the bomb, or when the Y two K hit and people expected everything to just break and stop working, and then yeah, it's going to be Mad Max all of a sudden. <laughs> so I remember people preparing and and building those underground bunker condos and things like that even back then because of that scenario. Yeah, so so T, when you were doing your research and, and you were meeting these doomsday preppers, was there like a particular age? Was it baby boomers who grew up with the threat of nuclear devastation?、Uh, you know, or or is it young people now who just watch too many zombie movies?、Uh, it, it really spans generations for sure.、Um, you definitely do have your older school preppers、um, who vary quite a bit. You know, some of them. Um, are, you remember there was a, a big back to land movement、uh, with hippies in the seventies. So you'll find some sort of they don't call themselves preppers. They usually call themselves homesteaders,、um, and they're usually older people that just want to be self reliant. And then, as Wendy mentioned, Y two K. There's there's people left over from eighties and nineties sort of fears, and there's different one one of the fascinating things. So. A lot of preppers would tend to be more conservative or libertarian, but since Trump has been elected, there's actually been an increase in liberal preppers, and most of them are a younger generation, you know,、um, and they're afraid that, you know, Trump's going to try to order a, a Coke with the button on his desk and maybe press the nuke button instead. <laughs> 
so <laughs> there is uh, it changes. That's not a know? Big Mac. It had the same two last letters. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I just so it, it really the demographic I think changes quite a bit depending on what's going on in the world and who's in control of the White House. Definitely, uh, you know, during Obama's administration, there was a huge surge in more of um, your militia type of survivalists because um, we were told all the time by whatever news sources that Obama was going to take all the guns, remember? Mm. So that led to the huge, um, huge explosion of more survivalist-type preppers. Right, we always hear about whenever there's a, like a mass shooting somewhere, like quickly after there's an increase in gun purchases versus a decrease because the people who want guns or want to protect themselves with guns or whatever, um, they're going to buy them up just in case this is the point where the NRA finally runs out of money. Right, right, yeah. Um, you know, and, and then they eventually, they, they, they come for the guns. But, you know, that, that's a good point. And it seems like different generations have their different reasons to be scared or, or um, to kind of go to the militia movement. Because when you think about the 90s, you had things like Ruby Ridge and Waco, uh, where it felt like the government was coming in. And if they didn't like what you were doing, they were going to blow you up and kill you. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, you have this idea of where now we live in the blogosphere where as soon as any event happens, people will immediately write an article either pro-gun control or anti-gun control based on whatever kind of clicks they're trying to get. And that creates a fear. And so I was just wondering when you were talking to these different generations of preppers, um, did you get some sense that they were more fearful than regular people, that there was some kind of anxiety that happened? Because if if you are in the, you know scared enough of the end of the world that you are going to take action, not just like buying a gun to protect your house or something like that, but building a bunker or – remember Glenn Beck used to have a radio show and mm-hmm. the, big, the biggest sponsor was uh, – like food in case there was a power outage. Like it's, it's, like he talked about it every half an hour. He's like, when the electricity goes out, you're going to need food. People are going to be coming to your house to murder you for your food. Hey, well, yeah. don't forget the famous wave radio that Art Bell used to pedal. Oh, yeah. On the regular. <laughs> <laughs> right. When it hits the, you need a crank radio. It was, it's the C-Crane crank radio, right? That's, That's right. the whole idea. If nothing and else, like, you can still listen to the radio. Right. You're going to have to listen to defend yourself against the marauders coming. All that type of stuff, by the way, is a big, big business. The prepper Mm -hmm. business is uh, billions of dollars. Did you find people who you felt on the whole were more fearful or had more anxiety? Was there some kind of pathology in there that convinced them they had to get ready in this particular kind of way? Yeah, I mean, definitely um, a lot of those people tend to be a little bit more paranoid about world events, um, a little bit more fearful. But uh, again, you know, uh, I found that a lot of them had a pretty rational explanation, which was they viewed it as a type of insurance, right? So, you know, they're getting some things, some preparations. They don't think they'll necessarily have to use them, but in case there is some sort of disaster, then they'll be prepared, whereas people like me won't, you know? But still, I think you need to find a, a good balance in your life. I think that you should be concerned about uh, potential disasters, definitely. But at the same time, um, living in fear of the world ending, I think, is a really unhealthy 
way of thinking. And not fun. No, yeah. no, not fun. Well, I think a lot of people, though, you, you get this feeling, and um, as we've seen, you have a great appendix at the end of the book, where it's like an apocalypse appendix of the different apocalypses that we've survived. And, you, you know, you talked about this when you said, like, the blood moon apocalypse in September 2015, and I remember we did a show about that, yeah. and all the apocalypses we've missed yeah. And my personal favorite was like I remember May twenty first, two thousand eleven, Harold Camping. Oh yeah. Um yeah. and they covered and Harold Camping was a, a preacher in California who predicted the end of the world was gonna happen like at six PM on May twenty first, two thousand eleven. Yeah. And I remember I was in the Dells that weekend. Yeah. Wisconsin Dells, which is like a water park capital and it's a tourist trap kind of area. I mean I love it. But I'm sitting there going, the world's going to end, and I'm going to die in the Wisconsin Dells. <laughs> hey, it could be worse, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could die at a 38 special concert. It could yeah. be worse. Oh. No, uh, that, it's, it's, it's great that you bring that point up, because I, I actually think that was kind of the seed for this book starting, was um, before that date came, I was uh, I was downtown Milwaukee here, walking around, and I came to Water in Wisconsin, which is one of the busiest intersections downtown. And there was people on all of the corners with these T-shirts on that had the end date on it. And, um, you know, they're handing out pamphlets about how Harold Camping had predicted the state. You know, and I stood there and stared at them for a while, like, trying to figure out what was going on. Because I, I couldn't figure out why they had these dates on their shirts. Um, and, of course, I can't pass up an interesting wingnut. So, you know, <laughs> I stood there and stared at them. I read their pamphlet. And I was like, wow, this guy thinks the world's going to end. In 2011, so it was just kind of a fun moment in my life. <laughs> That's cool. You know, what I like about the book, too, is you do treat uh, doomsday preppers who would very easily be dismissed as, like you said, wing nuts, nut jobs, things like that, with some sympathy and compassion, and you're dealing with people you're not dealing with. I, you know, you're not dealing with just a political identity. You're, you're dealing with people. And I, I feel that in the culture right now, it's very easy to separate the us from the them, saying like, you know what, we're rational. We don't believe in this kind of crazy stuff. They're nuts. And whatever they say, you know, it just it's BS because uh, they're on a different team than we are. And I, I like the fact that you go through the book and you talk to the people and you give them personalities, you give them humanity even as you're trying to understand, um, you know, understand the state of mind and understand what it takes to be a doomsday prepper. Because like you, when the end of the world comes, I'm just going to die. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to fight a little bit, but chances of me dying are like 98%. But, but Mike, isn't it like, can't you just find a friend who has a bunker, kind of like having a friend with a boat? That's you true. know, like... <laughs> <laughs> right? Somebody who really likes you that's willing to possibly spend the rest of their life in a very small enclosed space with you. And then when it that goes would, down, you just, you know, run to that person's safe place. See, I wouldn't even a lot some of these bunkers I've seen, I was like, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't I would rather be dead, you know? It's really that bad, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, I think about uh, your basement or something and having to live in your basement for 5 years or something. It's like, I would kind of just rather die than be stuck in an enclosed small oh. space like that, you know? Yeah, especially depending on who you're stuck with. Right, right. I think it really depends on your DVD collection. <laughs> like, in, that, in, that movie, in that movie, 10 Clo Cloverfield Lane, 
um, when they showed like John Goodman's collection of like movies and books and stuff like that, you're like, well, okay. I mean, and John Goodman's funny. So at least you'd have that going for you. Well, <laughs> especially when you consider that the, in a scenario like this, there probably wouldn't be internet and there might not be electricity. Like, so you really are in an enclosed space yeah. with zero entertainment, basically. <laughs> I think this is a good excuse, though, for like, you know, when you treat other humans with compassion and understanding and try to see what their state of mind is and see their point of view and where they're coming from can be really useful when it comes to the end of the world, because this might enable you to have a friend with a bunker if Trump hits the coke, the nuke button instead of the coke button. Right? So that's what we're all hoping for, is that friend with that bunker at the end of the world. So at least keep one of them. So try to, try to be good to the, you know, try to good, be good to people because you might need them when we're battling for gasoline. Right. You know, now that we talked a little bit about the doomsday preppers in, in general, I want to get into some of the uh, scenarios for the end of the world that you talk about in the book that, you know, I thought were particularly interesting. Um, like Rose. Like I, I just jumped uh-huh. into the Rose chapter. Yeah. And halfway through, I was like, oh, man. So, so who is Rose? Okay, so uh, Rose is an award-winning chatbot. Um, and her creators entered her into a contest. Uh, it's a contest uh, based sort of on the Turing test. They see how long uh, an artificial intelligence can keep a person fooled into thinking that they might actually be a person. And Rose didn't last very long, but she lasted longer than the rest. Hmm. So it's something that's improving constantly, you know. Um, and the chapter- and that's the that's the Turing the Turing test, right? The Tur- Alan Turing, yes, um, uh, who Benedict Cumberbatch played in that movie, right? Said, right, yeah. uh, if if you can not determine, like through through talking to an artificial intelligence, whether or not it's a simulated human or a real human, then it's passed the Turing test. Yes, right. Um, and so that chapter focuses on how that could potentially be a threat. It's nowhere near really being a threat right now, but because it's developing so quickly, there's concerns that uh, things could slip away from us. You know, the classic example in movies would be HAL from 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. Um, but I talked I can't to. do that, Dave. <laughs> right. I talked to a guy from the. Uh, I love the name of this. The Global Catastrophic Risk Institute, um, and him and his colleagues study emerging technologies, nuclear threats, stuff like that. Uh, he gave a really interesting analogy, which would be like, you might develop a, a super intelligence and ask it to play chess, and they think that the best chess move is to just kill all of humanity, because then it wouldn't have any opponents. Hmm. So, you know, it's something that is pretty far away from being a threat right now, but it's a there's potential for something like that in the future. That's the war game scenario, right? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's one of the dangers of artificial intelligence. But what are, you know, what are some of the others when you talk to, like the people from the the Global Risk Initiative and you talk to some different uh, you know, AI scientists and you even traveled to New York to talk about AI, right? Yes. Um that's uh, the guy from the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute okay, in. is uh, in New York, so I I visited him while I was out there to talk about Mostly AI. Um, you know, another thing that's... There's also a, a campaign to stop killer robots, which um, it sounds really sci-fi-ish, but I think what they're more concerned about are things like drones that are now able to take out targets uh, without human input, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. There'll be like a, a facial recognition and then a drone 
will just kill someone. So obviously, you know, uh, technology that powerful can go a number of bad ways. Um, if someone hacks into it, or um, if it starts developing its own intelligence. Well, one thing I think is interesting is I remember there was an article on the um, the, the Predator program developed by the Department of Defense. And so it uses machine learning and artificial intelligence for terrorists. Like it uses the cell phone networks to find out. So let's say you have a phone number of somebody you think is a known terrorist. And then it goes around, it goes all the people that that person has called and all the people that those people have called. And it goes through and finds the phone records and studies them to kind of determine who would be the most likely of the bunch that were terrorists. And then it would make kill suggestions based on that for then the drone to go in, zero in on the location of the cell phone and then blow it up. And it does this whole thing and then it has to go to a human to hit the yes button, you know, would you like to kill this person? Yes yeah. or no? You know, click click here to continue. <laughs> right. Uh, um, and then it reaches that point. But the thing is, it could very easily, uh, the technology is already there for it to determine a kill list and then it to do the kill list without human interaction. With, you know, just saying like, you know what, good enough. And so that idea of the stop, the campaign to stop killer robots um, means that a machine can be the investigative police force. A machine can be the judge and the jury, and then the machine's going to be the executioner. And so they can determine who to kill, how to kill, when to kill, and then kill without e- us even, without a, without a, any human interaction. And that's That's scary. terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Right. And we, it's, <laughs> we built it, guys. Good job, team. <laughs> um, and I, I know it's I know it's useful in a, in a world like this to defend against threats and things like that. But you would hope that you know the danger of AI as you make it smarter and smarter and smarter in order to be able to defend us. We're also giving it the tools to uh, well go Skynet. Anyway, so that so I love that part of the book where you're getting into Rose and the dangers of artificial intelligence. Now, when you talk to Rose, there's a whole point where you're having a conversation and then she mentions like an asteroid crushing the earth. Like yeah. where did that come from? I don't see this the this is to me is a frightening thing. And then I tried to get her to elaborate and she went. She just changed the subject on me. Oh man. I was like trying to get angry. I was like, Rose, what about the asteroid? <laughs> And she was like, no, do you like gardening? Oh, man. It's like, no, go back to talking about this killer <laughs> asteroid. And she would not. Right, it's like a Freudian slip. Right, right. Uh, but it was it was a very interesting conversation. I actually thanked Rose in the acknowledgments. So. <laughs> so I think the chapter in AI is fascinating. But then also, you know, while, while some of the doomsday preppers are very interested in terrestrial threats about what could happen to humanity, you also go into... What happens when the Space Brothers come? Yeah. Yeah, that was um, a really fun chapter. Um, I think uh, I really enjoyed... The thing I really enjoyed uh, about that chapter was to um, talk about Dorothy Martin and her followers um, in the the 50s. Yes, the Seekers. Um, And not too far away from us, either. Uh, They were in a Chicago suburb. Um, I forget the name of it, but... She got some notoriety for predicting that a giant flood was going to destroy the Midwest and that her and her followers would be rescued by a UFO. They even had a secret code word to get on the UFO, which was, I left my hat at home. 
It's a secret phrase again, the UFO. Um, <laughs> I remember and- that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wrote it. I wrote it down when I was taking notes on the book. I, gonna, I, I left my head at home. Like, do not. Yeah, right. <laughs> do right. not forget this when they come. And then, of course, it was very publicly embarrassing for them uh, because they had made this prediction. I forget the date. I think it was. It was originally in October of 1952. I want to say somewhere around there, and then it didn't happen. And they, I talk a little bit about cognitive dissonance in this chapter. They changed the date to December, and um, this is just a scene I wish I, I would have loved to have seen. Her and her followers came out on the street and were singing Christmas carols, and there was a huge crowd of people there, because the newspapers had reported that this UFO was going to come and pick them up, and then, of course, it never happened. So, it was quite a scene. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the followers... They end up kind of splitting town because their relatives were trying to commit them to insane asylums for their beliefs. Um, but ever since then, I mean, there's been periodic examples of UFO cults who believe that um, either the world is going to end or the world is going to change drastically uh, and there's going to be contact with aliens and stuff like that. Well, you know, that makes me think about you talked about you wish you would have seen the scene they had in 1952 when they thought they were going to get picked up and then the reporters came and, and nothing happened. There's a scene, the, the third season of The Leftovers, uh, which is an HBO show, the, the first scene in that is, is shown from the great disappointment of 1844. Oh, cool. So the cool. people were like waiting on top of their houses. Yes, yeah. They, they set up this whole thing with everybody's waiting on top of their house and then nothing happens. Mwah, right, mwah. yeah. I wrote, I, wrote about, I wrote about the great disappointment in the book too in, um, in the first chapter. And that's one, of the, that's one of the first examples of people are expecting the end of the world to come. They're prepared. They're going to be taken up. And it's not, I mean, in a, ra- in a rapturous kind of thing, even though the rapture is more of a, I mean, I guess that's a very 19th century idea, this idea that, End of the world's coming. God's going to, you know, maybe an angel will grab you, lift you up, or just you go flying away to the sky. Got to leave your clothes behind, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> That's how I do it. I, I try to have a rapture every night. My neighbors hate no. it. <laughs> and the thing about the Great Disappointment and Dorothy, uh, Dorothy Martin and her followers was they both believed in this so strongly that a lot of them had quit their jobs. They'd wow. given away possessions, you know. They were ready to go. So, and then that was an extremely sobering reality to realize that they had, in some cases, let their property go or left their jobs or their their education. And, you know, the world kept turning. Right, and Dorothy Martin had to run away to Peru or whatever. Yeah. To the Brotherhood of the Seven Rays. Right. So a different different organization um, of Nutcrackers that uh, she had talked to. And so I thought that was interesting because I'd never heard of the story of Dorothy Martin before, and especially because they were based in Chicago. And... Dorothy Martin originally saw, or she said she communicated with the Space Brothers or whatever, in a, a rural Wisconsin. Yeah, right. So did you have a chance to go to that farmhouse in rural Wisconsin and have a talk with the Space Brothers? Um, no, I have not. Uh, but we're... Oh, actually, I think your Dorothy Martin's story is a little bit different than the one that you're talking about. Um, you're talking about the woman who moved to rural Wisconsin and... Um, developed a Planet X theory. The Planet X was heading our way and going to destroy the world. Different alien case. Different (laughs) alien case. My bad. 
yes, no. Uh, by it, it's in the same chapter. I talk about both cases in the same chapter. Um, and in that case, Nancy Leader is who I'm thinking. Right. Of. Yes. Exactly. That's her name, Nancy Leader. Um, I, I did try to contact her because I would have loved to have visited her um, because she's still living in Wisconsin, mm. I believe. Uh, but she told me she was mm-hmm. too busy to talk to me, mm. too busy working on um, information gathering. Right. She's getting the, the visitations from the aliens and Planet X uh, when they eventually crash into uh, us. Right. Um, so that's a more recent example. So we talk about Dorothy Martin, and, and Nancy Leader's a more recent example because she took Zachariah Sitchin's discussions of Planet X and, and Nib- Nibiru. Remember, remember they had that whole episode where we tra- had to figure out how to pronounce Nibiru. Yes. <laughs> right, yes. Um, and the Zeta Reticuli. Yes, um, right, right, right. But what I thought was fascinating was the Raelians. And I'd heard of the Raelians before, Yeah. but I guess I'd never learned as much about the Raelians as I did from your book here, T. So you had a chance to actually talk to a Raelian representative. Yes. Not, I mean, of, of the organization. Can you explain a little bit of what, the, what they believe? Really? Yeah, I've been fascinated with this group for a long time, which is one of the reasons it made it into the book. Um, I think I have I first encountered them because they were doing a Milwaukee event. This was back in like 2003 or something. But um, it, it the religion starts with a French guy. It's a very French religion, I would have to say. Um, it started with a French race car driver and pop singer who claims that he was hiking in the mountains and was picked up by a UFO that had uh, Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha in it. And they explained to him it's this new religion. deck. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, and so he's had this, he started this religion that's been controversial over the years. Um, they've claimed that they've cloned a human. Um, they're very much a free love type of UFO cult. Like, they have a holiday that's called Go Topless Day, <laughs> where people kind of hang around topless. I'm converting. Uh, well, like I say, it doesn't sound like a very French right. type of religion. Um, <laughs> but, and it's grown quite a bit. Um, definitely in France, in Canada, a little bit in the United States, mostly California, not surprising. Weird. Um, <laughs> and also in Japan, a little bit. Um, I talked to one of the representatives from... Montreal. Uh, Luke is Israeli name. A lot of them have kind of changed their name to, to fit the religion a little bit. Um, but he was very nice, interesting guy. Um, told me a lot about Raelianism and Rail. They have a belief in sort of an end time, but it's it's actually kind of a peaceful interpretation, which is the Eliohem, which is what they call this race of, um, you know, intelligent life forms from a different planet, are it's going to... a very to, biblical Hebrew-like name, too. Yes. You know, that sounds angelic. Um, the Rael and his followers believe that they need to build this beautiful embassy for these aliens. And once that happens, they're going to land, and then they're going to bring a peaceful revolution to the world, you know? going to fix a lot of our problems like hunger and pollution Um, and the you know the world is going to become this amazing best case scenario yes yeah yeah well do you expect any less from an organization that has something called go top no (laughs) 
but I also think it's very uh, it's very significant that they're almost it's a very sci-fi kind of religion because number one they believe that the Iliam are come come down and when we're when we're ready to accept peace and harmony and you know have this the new Jerusalem kind of paradise on earth. But second is very sci-fi because it's the new year is celebrated on August sixth, which is the anniversary of the uh, the nuclear bomb going off in Hiroshima. Right, and that that's what gets us to aliens' attention, just like in the day the Earth stood still. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I guess I should point out, they do believe in a, a, a bad scenario, which is, I guess, the way they view it is there's either going to be, humanity has a choice. You can either go down path A, which is going to be nuclear destruction of the entire world, or you go down path B, which is you build this embassy, the Eliohem come to Earth, and the world becomes uh, paradise. So make the right choice, <laughs> right? So so just make sure. So don't so give uh, President Trump a Pepsi button instead of a Coke button, <laughs> right. right? Less right. chance of mistakes. So, uh, but the alien chapter is great because it also when you talk about people uh, going through time being disappointed when they think that uh, some kind of rapturous apocalypse is going to come and then it doesn't come, I mean that can lead to things like Heaven's Gate, which was. You know, its own apocalyptic cult. Yeah, that's one of the, the most infamous cases, of course, was as members thought that they were going to get off of the planet um, onto a UFO. I mean, sort of similar to Dorothy Martin's group, although yeah. her group didn't take that last step, which was uh, suicide. It was a mass suicide from Heaven's Gate. Um, they're a very interesting group, too. They had, you know, when. when I, I knew about Heaven's Gate when it happened. It was something I, I read about at whatever age I was when that happened. But before I started working on this book, I didn't realize that they had such a long history as a group. You know, they date back to the 70s, actually. And uh, if you guys are interested in going more about Heaven's Gate, we have a fully in-depth uh, episode where we talk where we, on the 20th anniversary of the, the suicides. And we talk about it, and that's one of those things where they thought the only way to get to the, you know, to get to the alien spaceship was by dying and releasing their souls here. So if somebody tells you to do that, don't. That's right. Yeah, that was episode 138, if you want to check it out. So some of the other uh, interesting ways that the world can end in the book, I really like your chapter on the sixth extinction, which is also the name of a great X-Files episode. <laughs> but they don't explain that much about what the sixth extinction is. So could you elaborate a little bit? Sure. Um, and by the way, this this chapter to me is a, a most likely scenario as far as an actual threat to the world. So our planet so far um, has had five major extinctions um, throughout its long, long history. A lot of those were extinctions of simple organisms as the world was starting, of course, uh, the extinction that caused the death of the dinosaurs is is one of the more famous ones. Um, and scientists believe that right now we're in, we're in a sixth extinction, where you see so many different species of animals going extinct that it's really kind of alarming. And the focus of the chapter is a lot on climate change and the different bad things that will happen to the planet as uh, the globe heats up, you know. I, t I talk about kind of a extreme climate scientist in the chapter, um, but then I also actually went to Madison for this chapter. I went to UW-Madison and talked to a climate scientist there who I think has a more uh, grounded perspective. 
And the depressing reality is, you know, that sort of end of the world isn't something where, boom, the world is over one day. It's kind of a, a slow, creeping death that's going to um, affect the world badly in small increments here and there. Right. This is how the world ends, uh, not with a bang, but a whimper. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a couple things about this chapter I love. Um, number one, I hadn't heard the term before, Anthropocene extinction. Because that word anthro, which means human, like anthropology or misanthrope, you hate humans, um, like that fully puts the onus on humanity. This is the age of humanity, and this is our extinction. Yeah. And number two, when you talk about the dinosaurs, you go ahead and you put the picture of the T-Rex eating <laughs> the Triceratops from the Milwaukee Public Museum. Yes. Yes, that was fun. I went and got permission from the, the museum to use that photo. And um, that, by the way, they built that exhibit when I was probably, I don't know, eight years old or something. And it terrified me, me when I was a kid. When you walk in that room, because it's just so big. If you're if you're a kid, there's this huge T-Rex looming life-size in front of you. And, the, and it, it's, it's graphic. Right, the- I feel like at the time, the sound effects were louder, or maybe they seemed louder because I was a kid. It's kind of this thunder and lightning and roaring and... You know. Yeah, it's like a haunted house for a little kid because <laughs> yeah. e- little kids love dinosaurs, and the T Rex is always the thunder lizard, the scariest dinosaur. And then you see him in his full majesty, feasting on a triceratops with the guts and everything. Yeah, and you're standing next to it, so you get to you know <laughs> feel the scale as a child. I-, I was also traumatized by that <laughs> as a kid and field trips to the museum. <laughs> when I think about this. Um, Joe Pilato, who who played uh, Captain Rhodes from Day of the Dead, passed away yesterday at 70 years old. And his famous uh, scene is his death scene in Day of the Dead, where he's being pulled apart by the zombies, and he's going, choke on him, choke on him. And it's such a horrific scene. He's, his character's so foul in that film. and But you see the guts of him. And so when I first saw that scene in Day of the Dead, the first thing I thought of was the guts of the Triceratops <laughs> from the Milwaukee Public Museum. So rest in peace, Joe Pilato. But also the fact is it's graphic enough that I, I can still see it clear as day like post-traumatic stress disorder in my mind. Yeah. Uh, so I just love that you put that in there. But the extreme climate scientist is uh, McPherson, right? Yes, Guy McPherson. And, I mean, he basically says... But there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, he he was uh, his message was just you know give up hope. It was pretty much like just give up. There's no there's nothing that you can do. You're gonna you're gonna die in a couple of years. That's how rapidly the the planet is, is heating up. So so we should be partying like it's 1999, huh? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I was like, okay, it was a very. I'll start today. Um, I saw, yeah. He's um he gave a very interesting speech about it, but I don't think that he's accurate. Like I say, I don't think this is something that's going to happen in the next year or two years, as he seemed to predict. Um, it's going to be a very long, slow process unless things turn around. And unfortunately, it does look like there is a lot of world leadership that's taking it seriously. Well, okay, so so let's say what happens is, I mean, the climate changes, we're already up a couple degrees. And in, in the book, you mentioned that the, the professor at UW that says six degrees difference in temperature could destroy the world. Right, yes. And so, because it might lead to what? So what is a climate war? 
and should I be buying guns to protect myself? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the other thing is, it's not necessarily, it's going to be a combination of things. It's not just the world heating up, but it's what that causes, um, what the things it causes to happen. So, one thing is, if water supplies start drying up, um, then you might see nations that are fighting each other for water supplies instead of oil supplies. Um, water might become something that's an extremely valuable commodity. Um, so it can, and the other thing is, it will be huge fluxes of refugees leaving countries because they don't have enough water or because the sea levels have risen so much that they need to abandon their countries. And having millions of refugees moving in directions of countries that have dry land and clean water, um, of course, is going to uh, cause a lot of political nightmares. So, you know, also agriculture will be extremely affected by um, global warming. Um, and these are all just different factors that are going to lead to a really bad situation. So the idea is uh, we need to get off the planet as quickly as possible before we ruin it. Or work toward the opposite direction. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, or, or try to get less pollution and, and try to, to, to turn back the, the tide of climate change. But the idea of a climate war, like I'm already afraid of what happens because we get so much for agriculture from California when the big one hits in California, right? And they, it's, it's, it breaks off the mainland. Like what's going to happen to our crops no more avocados. Right. <laughs> right. How, how am I going to have my guacamole? If I had guacamole, I'm going to start a climate war myself. <laughs> so that idea that uh, I think when people think about uh, climate change, they don't realize that very small changes affecting an agriculture will then have larger changes. It's, it's the butterfly effect. Yes, completely. Without <laughs> Ashton Kutcher. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, a lot of our systems are kind of frail, so... Um, you know, there's a lot to be concerned about. Um, I, I read a, a book by by Ted Koppel, actually, while I was working on this book, called Lights Out. It's about how incredibly fragile our electrical grid is, you know? Oh, gosh, that's scary. It's pretty easy to do some pretty serious damage to a lot of people if that goes out. And think about how much we rely on electricity, you know, as a society, really. Yeah. I thought about that when we had the polar vortex this so, winter. You know, I you're outside for five minutes and suddenly you can't feel your extremities. It's like, what what do people do without heat? It's really seriously a problem. Dangerous. Well, our system, I mean, right now we live in a, like you just said, the polar vortex. So we're in Wisconsin, T's in Milwaukee, Wendy and I are in Madison. And when we talk about uh, the wintertime, like you're dead if you go outside. So... It, our, our systems right now for heating and everything relies on this grid. It's not the times of Laura Ingalls Wilder or whatever where we can just start a fire and we'll be okay. How many people do you actually know that could make a fire without a lighter? Right, right. Not me. Like I said, I'm dead. When the EMP goes <laughs> off, that's why I have friends with bunkers. Otherwise, I'm yeah. going to die. Right. But okay, so Ted Koppel's book goes into, I mean, what would happen when the power goes out? And... Uh, remember that great episode of the Twilight Zone, the monsters are due on Maple Street, where it shows oh. people turning on each other just because they put the power out in one neighborhood. Yeah. 
you know, and, and, and that's that idea. So let's say, uh, you know, if, if we go to your, your last chapter, T, let's say what happens that we can't save the earth or whatever. Uh, it's a, it's a scenario or, you know, or the asteroids are coming, you know, and it's a deep impact slash Armageddon scenario and Bruce Willis can't save us. Then how do we get to Mars? Who's going to Mars? Yes. So, um, I mean, I think that really is the future, no matter what. We need to colonize space. Um, if for no other reason, because the world is becoming incredibly overpopulated. So if you want to keep increasing the population the way that it has been, you're going to need to settle other planets. Um, there's a lot of excitement about this idea. Um, there's a lot of companies that would like to f- send the first settlement to Mars. Um, I talk in my last chapter about a group called Mars One, which has been sort of sort of a controversial group as far as people are very skeptical about whether they can actually do this, but they are trying to develop a program to send um, the first group of people to Mars to set up a colony. And they keep pushing the date back, but um, I believe their projection right now is something like 2026. And that's, hey, and that's pretty good. That's a one-way trip for somebody. Yes, one-way trip, um, just because... It would be a much cheaper mission, and because, you know, the goal is to start a settlement. Um, besides Mars 1, though, I should point out, you know, NASA also does have a plan to send people to Mars. Um, SpaceX has also talked about something like that. But they got to get a rocket off the ground first. And the, the trip to Mars, doesn't it take like seven years or something? I guess depending on the technology, <laughs> as things advance, hopefully it'll be shorter. Yeah, the technology is... Technology is changing, but I, I remember it being a lot shorter oh, okay. than that. I think it take like a, a couple like months or nine months. Wow. I think. Yeah, yeah. Because well, the thing is, I mean, and I thought you know driving to Florida took forever. Yeah, but um, no, the idea here. I mean, the idea here. We have to colonize space. I'm I'm com- in complete agreement with, with, with it because I don't think that people will stop populating. You know, when scientists come out and say what we're going to have to do is people stop are going to need to stop having children and unless you put birth control in the water supply, unless there's some kind of plan like that which is obviously sick and terrifying, um you're not going to stop people from reproducing at the rate that the planet's going. Yes. Well, that's why we just have to eat the babies. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you Jonathan Swift. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's uh, you know, it's Soylent Green. Um, but this idea of overpopulation has been with us from the seventies, and they've always been like, okay, we're gonna have to do everybody's gonna have one kid, blah blah blah. Or China, they enforced that one child policy. Like, you might be able to do that in, in that culture, but if people tried to do that here, um, then there would be a you know, there would be a revolt. I'm sure people would you know, people would fight the government if that was the policy here. I would. Um, I'd be I'd be the doomsday prepper in that scenario, and so. We're going to have to go to Mars. So I love that it, it almost gives us um, some kind of hope. The end of the world as we know it might come, but there might be another world we can go to, and we're smart enough to get there. Yeah, that was really um, my intention, too, was I was like, this book has a lot of depressing moments in it, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I kind of joked around that, because I was reading so much um, stuff about the world ending, so I joked that when the book was over, I was going to read nothing but Hello Kitty comics or something for a month <laughs> right. to try to 
get my brain back in whack. I was wondering about that. You, you know, just spending three <laughs> full years constantly focused on that topic. It's it's almost like you need a some Tony Robbins it's a to, downer. to get you positive again. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's definitely some moments where it was really depressing. Yeah, but so that's why I thought it was important to end the book on kind of a an optimistic note that you know humanity. Even if the world starts to fall apart, uh, we're a, a resourceful group of people, and hopefully humanity will live on, on on Mars and maybe eventually other planets as well. And so if you guys are looking for the book, you'll be able to find that, uh, a link to where you can purchase it directly in the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 241. And I encourage you guys to read this book, especially if you have a biased view of doomsday preppers and people that you know have a, an affinity for conspiracy theories. And I know a lot of my friends are, you know, they consider anybody who's a doomsday prepper or whatever to be wacky and on the other team and on the other side. And it really has a balanced, compassionate look um, at other human beings and how they believe. And so I encourage every to read it because not only is it fun and funny and interesting, it's also going to uh, you know, make you see other human beings with some kind of sympathy and compassion. And I think that's a, uh, that's a beautiful way to put it. So well done, T. And everybody should buy the book. Oh, thank you. Congrats. <laughs> thank you. And so if people want to meet you in person and pick up a, maybe a signed copy of the book from you, where are some places they can do that coming up? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to get out there with the book. Um, that's kind of the, the payoff for putting a lot of work into a project. So, um, Thursday, April 4th, I'm going to be in Chicago at Volumes Book Cafe uh, at 7 p.m. My big Milwaukee event is going to be here in Milwaukee Friday, April 12th. I'll be at Woodland Pattern Book Center at 7, followed by an after party at Landmark Lanes. Um, That'll be a fun time. The next day, Saturday, April 13th, I'm going to be in West Bend at the Crimson Cowl comics and collectibles shop wow, that's a lot of c's yes it's run by uh, a real life superhero oh uh, cool who i interviewed for my first book heroes in the night and we can we'll link to, that's awesome. we'll link to our discussion about heroes in the night in the show notes as well yeah so i'm uh, excited to see him again and, and be out in west men um and then the last one i have in april is april 20th i will be in madison Woo. Um, there's a little event called authors in the barns and it's at the Barnes & Noble at the West Town Is it West Yes, it Town is. Mall? The Barnes & Noble West Town Mall. And it's 422, so light one up and go meet T. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll be there from 10 to 3, I believe it is. And it's a, it's a bunch of Wisconsin authors are all going to have their own table inside the barns there. So you can um, meet a bunch of authors there. That sounds fun. Authors in the barns. Okay, I was thinking of it as a Wisconsin thing, like they were doing it to... Like, like yeah, in the in barn, the yeah, yeah. No, barns with an E. Okay, all right. I was like, all right, well, I guess that's a Wisconsin thing, but uh, T's barn's going to have a bunker. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> You're going to have a chance to check that out and get the get the book in person there. And also, to anybody who's in the Midwest, uh, T is the organizer for the Milwaukee Paranormal Conference. And you'd have a chance uh, during the Milwaukee Paranormal Conference to get a personal haunted tour of the most haunted area in Milwaukee from T. And that's uh, the Milwaukee Paracon fundraiser tour. And we're going to put a link to that in the notes so you can get uh, from 
one of Milwaukee's great paranormal authors uh, in, a, in, a, in a tour of Milwaukee's haunted downtown and uh, written by my sister, Allison. So uh, you know that the research is going to be good into it because we'd all bust her chops if it wasn't. <laughs> That's right. And there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about, T, because you're, you're so prevalent in the paranormal scene here. I heard that there's going to be an episode of, is it Outdoor Wisconsin? Oh, yes. With the Krampus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think... Can you tell us a little about that? I, I think that you guys might be in the show, too. You, you guys should do yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so we were, when we were working on Milwaukee Krampus, uh, which is a, a Krampus celebration we do every December 5th, um, we were really thrilled... Outdoor Wisconsin not only came to the event, but they came to a couple of our planning meetings to get some sort of behind-the-scenes footage. Um, and so that is finally going to premiere uh, tomorrow, actually. Thursday, awesome. the 28th. Um, it's premiering here in Milwaukee. I know that the times are a little bit different, according to the PBS stations. But it shows around Wisconsin and um, parts of... Illinois and Minnesota as well. So check your oh, cool. check your local listings for Outdoor Wisconsin, and they're going to be uh, featuring the the Milwaukee Krampus story in this episode. So congratulations on that. That sure yeah. was a fun event and very well done. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm thrilled that Outdoor Wisconsin picked up on it. So that's very Fantastic. cool. Well, we had a lot of Wisconsin talk today, but uh, we hope that everybody else enjoys. You know. First of all, come visit Wisconsin. But. <laughs> right. In May, May through September, you're going to love it. That's right. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much, T, for joining us today. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, always a pleasure to be here. And uh, we appreciate your time, and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, there's a variety of ways that the world can end. Mm, indeed. Um, and, you know, one of the popular ones is that it's, you know God's going to come down and rain hell you know, that's the whole idea of the book of Revelation is that when they wrote the book of Revelation, they thought that the end was coming within their lifetimes, just like wow. the people were talking about with the doomsday preppers. Yeah. You know, the idea was Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, these Romans done, you know, we're going to yeah. take care of it. And all the unbelievers are going to be tossed in the lake of fire and everybody else can be taken up by Jesus to heaven. Well, it's funny, Mike, because, you know, recently we were down in Austin for South by Southwest and mm -hmm. one of the huge... One of the biggest parties we went to, in fact, right, <laughs> was for the upcoming TV series of Good Omens, the Terry oh. Pratchett and Neil Gaiman mm -hmm. uh, story. So it, I was just thinking about it because they had such a great promotion going on where they, they had uh, people dressed up you know, in the streets handing out flyers that the apocalypse was coming. The end is near. And then it was all adding up to this giant party the the garden of earthly delights where people were supposed to just go and like enjoy life while you can because it's gonna be gone soon there were some <laughs> earthly delights though but uh <laughs> yeah there <laughs> certainly were yeah it but good. um it just it strikes me as funny that you know it is such a serious topic and yet like everybody's like yes look at we're having a little pretend end of the world haha <laughs> It's just, and I was thinking about it too, because they were handing out those flyers and they had people marching with the signs that said, you know, the end is near. And it reminded me of Y2K. Right. And I was in New York City the week before the turn from 99 to 2000. Mm -hmm. And there were actually people like that and it wasn't a joke. So it's just funny that in that short amount of time, it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's gone become from something, something we make fun of. 
Right, right. Or it's something we do, like we we, we joke around and go get some free beer. Right. <laughs> at the party. <laughs> so, I mean, that idea that, you know, the end of the world is coming or, or God's coming, he's going to deliver vengeance. Well, this particular song kind of takes that idea of the fire and brimstone of the end of the world and adjusts that to, if God won't do it, then we will. Uh, and, and that's what this song kind of covers, inspired by Apocalypse Any Day Now. This week's song is called fire and brimstone and you'll be able to take a listen to it in the show notes and you'll be able to listen to it in the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 241 or on the see you on the other side spotify playlist now we're recording this on wednesday march 27th and tonight wendy will be doing one of my favorite things Oh, it's one of my favorite things too, Mike. Yes. And that is the Skype Hangout with our See You on the Other Side podcast, Patreon. Yep. And I have to say, I've been looking forward to it all week. Actually, all month, now that I think about it. Yeah. March seemed to have, like, it came went oh. by in, in a flash. How did that happen? I, I know how it happened. I was drunk through most of it. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But, but the thing is, is that um, we get together with everybody who loves the podcast and loves talking about paranormal horror, uh, conspiracy series, UFOs, occult. It's connection to pop culture. And that's what we talk about uh, once a month with our Patreons. And we'd love to talk about that with you. If you're not a Patreon, we want you to join us for our Skype hangout. Come on in. The water's warm. Yep. And also, we like to have discussions, share links, a private Facebook group. And as uh, we develop more Patreons, we're going to have more perks and fun things to do with that. And where you can do that is othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And we want to give a great, big, gigantic, huge shout out to one of our community members, Dr. Ned. He's at the Patreon level where he gets a shout out every single episode. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Ned, thank you for your support. And to all our Patreons, thank you for helping keep See You on the Other Side going every single week with new content and fun stuff for you. And so one more time, here's our plug. Wendy, where can they find it? Othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And thank you, weird friends, for listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. When the electricity goes out, you're going to need food. People are going to be coming to your house to murder you for your food.